Turn in Matthew again to Matthew 16. Pick up where we left off last week, Matthew 16, verses 21 to 23 uh, today. I don't know about you, but uh, I hate imitation things. For the for first uh, 40 some years of my life, I did not like almond flavored anything. I liked almonds, all right. But anything almond flavored was just not my cup of tea. And then I moved here. And the first Christmas, here comes Esther with almond sticks. Not with artificial almond flavor, but with almonds inside, all munched up into almond paste. Wow. Can't get enough of them. I guess I had only ever tasted imitation almond flavor, which is not the same. Imitations are everywhere, you know, in our culture. I just thought about it a minute. I heard the other day about imitation honey made out of corn syrup and vegetable oil and who knows what. Imitation Parmesan cheese made with wood pulp and cellulose and a little cheap cheddar. Mm. Imitation leather made of coated fabric or composition rubber plastic or paper, not to mention knockoffs of every kind of shoes and purse and, and electronic gadget and everything. We live in a world of imitations. I don't like it, and I suspect you don't either. I share my rather opinionated perspective on that because this morning we're going to talk about imitation Christianity. Well, that's more disappointing and disgusting than any other imitation you might ever encounter. Let me read my text, and then we'll talk about it. Matthew 16, verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Two truths I want us to see in this. And the first is this. Jesus dying on the cross bothers us. Jesus dying on the cross bothers us. I know some of you are football fans. Can you believe what happened this week? The Seahawks let Richard Sherman go. Apparently to the 49ers. You've got to be kidding. People are offended. This bothers people. But Jesus dying on the cross bothers people even worse. That's kind of what happened, what we see in our text here. In verse 16, the disciples finally understood 
and confess to Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. In response, Jesus reveals his plan. In verse 18, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Now they're getting somewhere, finally. Finally, they recognize Jesus for the Messiah he is. Finally, the stage is set for the coming kingdom in all its glory. So in verse 21, Jesus begins to explain his strategy. He says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. Of course he's going to Jerusalem. That's the royal city where the Messiah will rule. And there he continues, I will suffer at the hands of my opponents who will put me to death. Whoa. Perhaps you can understand Peter's rejection of that idea. Never, Lord. This will never happen to you. Peter was not just shooting from the hip here. His response was absolutely logical. Think about it. Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ. He had just confessed that and been called blessed because of that confession. And the Messiah, God's anointed one, would deliver his people from their enemies. He would not be delivered to their enemies. To say otherwise was offensive. Jesus was the son of God. Peter had rightly concluded that. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. But God doesn't suffer and die. He's eternal. He's immortal. To think otherwise is crazy. And Jesus is the son of man. He said to himself, but according to Daniel 7, the son of man was given authority and glory and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will never pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So how can such a person be killed by his enemies? That sounds insane. You see, the thought of Jesus dying on the cross bothered Peter. That's an understatement. That talk about the cross offended every bit of human wisdom that Peter could muster. Such a message defied logic. It was completely beyond his comprehension. But Peter wasn't alone in that response. This plan has God's Messiah dying on a cross. That doesn't make sense. The Apostle Paul ran into the same kind of reaction all the time. He, he talks about it. He said, uh, listen, listen now, he describes people's response. The message of the cross, the Apostle Paul says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who perish. In another place, Jews demand a sign, Gentiles look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, foolishness to the Gentiles. Make no mistake, Jesus dying on the cross bothered, offended, insulted people's wisdom. And folks, you and I face the same obstacle today. You know, people in this world will often accept some kind of religion. They might even accept the church, might even accept the example and teaching of Jesus as a great man, a godly leader who advocated 
healthy social change. But the message of the cross, a Christianity with an execution of the Son of God at its core, is simply not acceptable. It's too messy, too gory, too primitive, too violent, too brutal. The cross offends the sensitivities of our enlightened society. Talk of Jesus dying just bothers people. It's not just out in the world. It's also true inside the church that the message of the cross makes people uncomfortable. And even when this teaching is not openly denied, it is often de-emphasized in a subtle attempt to make Christianity more palatable. So what does that look like when that happens? Well, sometimes we emphasize the psychological benefits of salvation. We emphasize it so much that Jesus living in my heart becomes the heart of the gospel. He gives me peace and joy and happiness, and he can do the same for you. In this frame of mind, Jesus can be presented to others and accepted by them with little or no mention of the ugliness of Jesus, brutalized and bleeding and dying on the cross. But is that gospel of psychological benefits really the gospel? Or at other times in the church, we emphasize the Holy Spirit. He can do miraculous things. He can give you guidance for your life and give you power to clean up your bad habits. He can bring healing and health and prosperity, bless you beyond measure, and make you feel really, really good. And you can have the Holy Spirit. Just ask for it. For it. It. Such a message sounds exciting, adventurous, like a return to the power of the early church. But if we're not careful, all the ugly talk of blood and sin and death and judgment can suddenly be swept away in the excitement as if it didn't matter. It's not the gospel. Well, these days, we always have Christians turning the gospel into a political agenda. Sure, we believe in the cross, but this is a time to make the reign of Jesus felt in the world. This is a time for dominion. It's a time for changing the laws of the land. It's a time for writing your congressman and organizing protests. Change is in the wind, and we must seize the opportunity. Mm. Change indeed, if we're not careful. For no matter which side of the political aisle you're on, the gospel is much more than your political position or your political strategy. The gospel we have to preach is about Christ and him crucified, a message which I guarantee you offends all political parties. Beware of the subtlety of it all. The message of Jesus dying bothers people. It offends human wisdom. But we dare not become too sophisticated for the gospel of the cross. If we do, we have accepted a cheap 
lifeless imitation. A gospel of the mind, a gospel of social concern, a gospel of uh, the emotions, but not the gospel that can save us from God's wrath and give us eternal life. That's the gospel of the cross. Which brings us to the second point. First thing, Jesus dying on the cross bothers us. Nevertheless, second point, God's plan demands the cross. God's plan demands the cross. Do you ever have a sincere, well-meaning person say something really dumb to you? Embarrassingly dumb. If so, how did you respond? I suspect most of us have enough social grace that we would bend over backwards to relieve that person's embarrassment and somehow try, try to make that stupid statement sound like it had at least a little uh, merit to it. <laughs> we want to be gracious. And Jesus is not less gracious than we are. We always read of him showing kindness to people. So then what do we make of Jesus' response to Peter? It doesn't sound very gracious. When Jesus said he would suffer and be killed, Peter immediately took him aside and said, Never, Lord, never. This will never happen to you. And listen to Jesus' kind and gracious response to keep Peter from feeling like he said something stupid. Peter, Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but only the things of men. Whoa. This is an amazing incident here. Peter, the great confessor of Jesus as the Messiah, the son of the living God, in verse 16, now becomes Peter, the mouthpiece of Satan, in verse 21, or whatever, 22. Peter, the rock of the apostolic foundation of the church, in verse 18, now becomes Peter, the stumbling stone, the rock of offense. Why? Peter must be asking himself, what did I say wrong? Well, he didn't know yet. But we should know. Peter denied the cross. That's what happened. Peter tried to have Jesus, had to try to have the Messiah, tried to have the kingdom, tried to have the church, all without the embarrassment to the shame of the cross. Or to use Jesus' words, Peter had only in mind the things of men. Not the things of God. For you see, the things of God, God's salvation plan demands the cross. Why is that true? Why? Let me give you two reasons for that. First, Jesus plan demands the cross because the cross shows the true condition of humanity. The cross shows the true condition of humanity. You know, we had a national tragedy in this country a couple weeks ago, a deadly shooting down in Florida, 17 people killed. 
you ever notice that every time there's such a display of wickedness, our whole society kind of has a, a sense of corporate guilt. We hear things like, what's happening to us? Where have we gone wrong? Is this what we've come to? But then it only lasts a brief time when we have to have some kind of talk about it and it comes into, becomes a political debate and everybody's cast dispersions at each other and we finally get, just kind of get swept under the carpet and we go on confident that we are indeed the greatest people that ever lived. Now the crucifixion of Jesus was such an event which should have brought a sense of corporate guilt like none other. It indicted the whole society at the time. A mob of citizens, jealous, scheming religious leaders, political leaders acting with raw, brutal expediency apart from any concern about the law. The, great, the crucifixion of Jesus was the greatest miscarriage of justice ever in the history of the world. It condemned the world as evil to its very core. No wonder people are prone to de-emphasize it. And here we are preaching about it again. And the more we preach it, the harder it is to evade that sense of corporate guilt. The cross is hard to explain away. But you see, God doesn't want the cross explained away. For the cross shows that our human condition really is that bad. It's the cross says to us that if God himself came and lived among us, we would reject and kill him rather than give up having our own way. It's exactly what happened. The cross reminds us that all of our education and our social advance and our political renewal is not enough. The problem of rebellion is in our hearts. Cross shows the true condition of humanity. Shows your true condition. Shows my true condition. Second reason the cross is crucial is that the cross shows the true nature of God. Not just the true condition of man. It shows the true nature of God. These days everyone defines God differently. The there's no longer any consensus among people, even in this country, about what kind of God God is. We've wandered so far from our Christian roots. So what is he really like? Well, look at the cross and you'll learn. The cross shows that God, quite differently than we tend to hear, that God is really angry about the sin of the human race. We like to think that God is looking the other way, pretending not to see the sinful rebellion because he likes us so much. But the cross shows the magnitude of God's holiness, a holiness that is so offended by our sin that the only way we could be delivered from God's holy wrath 
would be for his son himself to be executed in our place. You see, the cross forever destroys all religious schemes by which we thought we might gain God's favor. It says that God is so offended by our sin that only hell is enough to satisfy his justice. Oh, but the message of the cross doesn't just confirm our guilt and destroy our hope of ever earning good standing before a holy God. The cross also declares the magnitude of God's love and grace and mercy. Paul points that out in Romans 5, verse 8. God commended his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, at the cross we see how far God will reach to save us. To what length will he go to reclaim his creatures who are in a war of rebellion against him? Thus the cross becomes the ultimate expression of not just the holiness of God, but the love of God. At the cross, we see the true nature of God. Here, God's holiness and his love come together. God's holy justice demands an atonement for sin. So Jesus suffered and died that God might show himself just, a holy judge who does not wink at sin. But at the same time, God did so that he might then be free to show his love for us, to show how loving he really is, how he justifies and forgives and declares righteous those who do not deserve it, but only trust in what Jesus did. And because of this ingenious plan of God, we now can see how loving and merciful he really is. He has not treated us as our sins deserve, but has lavished his grace on us. That's why God's plan demanded the cross, that we might see the true nature of God, that we might see the holiness of God, that we might see the mercy and the grace of God. There's an old hymn by John Newton that brings together the grace and justice of God. We're going to sing it in a minute, but let me just uh, read one stanza of it. Here's how it goes. Let us wonder. Grace and justice join and point to mercy's store. When through grace in Christ our trust is, justice smiles and asks no more. He who washed us with his blood has secured our way to God. Oh, the cross may defy human wisdom, but it conforms exactly to the character and design of God. That which seems so offensive to us at first, when clearly understood, is seen to be the crowning jewel of God's plan to reclaim 
his creation. God's plan demands the cross. It shows our true status. It shows his true nature. You know, this morning it's possible that you have considered yourself a Christian for years since simply because you're a nice person and you grew up in the church. But if you have failed to understand what happened at the cross and what that means for you, you probably have only ever really known imitation Christianity. And such a religion is empty, for it fails to deal with the real problem, our sin, our rebellion, the death it brings, and the judgment that awaits. So if that's where you find yourself this morning, I call you to admit your utter hopelessness, your sinfulness before God, and abandon any thought that you might ever be good enough to earn your way. And then empty-handed and unconditionally give yourself to Jesus. Call upon him to save you. Trust him. Rest your soul in him who died to pay for your sin and make you right with God. And then rose from the dead to prove that his payment was enough. You see, there's no other Christianity than this. Everything else is lifeless, hopeless, powerless, substitute, a cheap but deadly imitation. Let's pray. Oh, Father, the cross is uh, as offensive to us as it is to anyone. We hate to think about such terrible, gory things. We hate to say this is what we believe in a sophisticated world. It offends our wisdom. It offends our friends. It offends our enemies. It gives our enemies... Uh, ammunition against us to speak about how backward and primitive we are, ignorant. Father, may we not fall into the trap, but may we say with Paul, I will boast of nothing except Christ and him crucified. So Lord, help us to see what the cross teaches us, what it teaches us, Lord, about our own nature, what it teaches us about your justice and what it teaches us about your grace. Thank you for the gospel, Lord. Give us grace to understand it and to believe it and rest in you with all of our heart. Amen.